0: Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. I'm Kimberly, fully vaccinated Johnson in DC. (laughs) Today my returning guest is anti-racism educator Tim Wise. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. But before we start with the show, I do try to keep these intros short. I have a tier on Patreon though that allows listeners to listen ad-free and with a much shorter intro. The Start Me Up podcast is an independent podcast supported by listeners and it's woman run. It's patrons who keep the show going and I'm so grateful if you do enjoy today's show take a look at the about page check out some of my past guests most of the time I talk to political people sometimes I talk to actors because I used to be one but just visit patreon.com slash start me up I do two free shows a week on Mondays and Wednesdays and they're followed up by the what's up show which is just me alone talking about whatever I feel like kind of like an online diary I also do one patrons only show with a guest once a month just check out the variety of tier options at patreon.com slash start me up you can make a one-time donation by checking out the text in the patreon description i've included a link that makes it easy to donate through paypal you can find start me up on itunes stitcher and wherever podcasts are found just stop by the itunes app apple podcast store become a subscriber it's free and while you're there if you like the show please rate it and leave a review i would really appreciate it now please enjoy my conversation with tim wise welcome back to the show tim
1: hey thank you so much for having me back
0: well, you're an important person to talk to right now, considering what you do for a living and what you're known for. Um, you are an anti-racist educator. And right now, our country is freaking out. I mean, We're just like freaking out. And I mean, I think we've been freaking out for a long time, but it's really gotten bad since Trump. And before we start... The show. You were on the show before, and you talked about your upbringing and the fact that you went to school. Um, you're a white guy, and you went to school with uh, African American students. Primarily, that was the, the, the more African American than white people. So, I just want you to kind of go over that a little, introduce yourself to everybody, so that they understand where you're coming from.
1: Sure. Well, let me let me clarify first off. Okay. I'm, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I grew up here, which is where I live again now and uh growing up i did i did uh, my very first you know educational uh, experience was preschool as it is for a lot of kids but i think the difference for me and this would have been in 1972 when i was like three and a half years old or whatever 1973 when i was four and a half um you know was going to preschool at a historically black college at the,
0: hmm, at the okay
1: preschool program there so i was in the early childhood ed program at tennessee state university which was on the other side of town from where i lived but where my mom really wanted me to go to preschool um and as i i joke about it you know on the one hand yeah it was because she wanted me to have a, an integrated uh, not only integrated, but really a, a, an experience where I would not be the norm. Like she mm-hmm. had the, you know, the foresight to realize the importance of that. And she also wanted to piss off her parents. So there that, <laughs> that part too, you know, uh, it wasn't all, it wasn't all nobility. Uh, it was some of that too. But, um, and then, you know, and then I went to public school in Nashville from 1974 to 1986. They were not majority black schools, but they were, you know, 40% probably uh, i think i think at one point like junior high what we now call middle school is probably 45% black kids so it's about about half and half um, maybe more like 35 to 38% in high school but yeah always very you know, integrated environments. I played ball on, on, you know, ball teams where I was one of only a handful of white kids on the team. And it was, it was really important. And I, and I bring that up not in the way that I think a lot of white folks do when they talk about like, oh, I've got black friends or I hung out with black people. Like that's not what I mean by it because every white person will tell you they have black friends and we're usually bullshitting. Like it's usually right. not real, right? Like um, to the point where we can't actually name them like first and last name. They're not in our speed dial, you know, so, so they're not really uh, that close to. was usually but for me that was literally like my entire friend base with the exception of one or two people in those early years of school were black kids because that was just sort of who i identified with and i'm sure that was about going to tsu for preschool um and so you know being on those ball teams and i may have told you this story last time i've told it many times before but it's worth repeating you know that when I was like 11 or 12, um, playing baseball, which was sort of my sport because I thought it was going to be basketball, and then you know I topped out at 5'8", and I was like, "All right, that's it. Clearly, I'm done with that shit. I better find a different, a different form of athleticism." Um, but when I was like 12, uh, you know, we went out to to play a scrimmage game uh, about 30 minutes outside of Nashville, and the team was like me, two other white guys, and the rest of the kids were black kids, and and we showed up, and um, and this team out in this sort of semi-rural... That, in those days, it would have been very rural. Now it's more of like an exurb. But, uh, you know, they were just like, yeah, we're not going to play you. I mean, they just refused to play us because it was a quote-unquote black team. And this is mm. 1980, not wow. 1950, you know. Yeah. Um, and they surrounded our car as we turned to leave and were calling the black kids the N-word and calling the Jeez. white kids and the white coach, you know, N-word lover and right. all those kind of things. And, and it was one of those really defining moments where... You start to to realize that there is this line that someone has drawn. Mm-hmm. You didn't draw it, and mm-hmm. your friends didn't draw it, but someone has drawn it, and these kids are letting you know, as a white person, letting me and the other white folks in the in the car know, uh, you have crossed the line. You have you have transgressed against this club, and we are going to strive to not only injure your black friends, but to injure you, um, whether it's physically or emotionally. I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was a very formidable thing. And the reason I tell the story is I think sometimes, you know, if you, if you come to your anti-racism, as I think some white folks do through, you know, the classes they take in college Mm -hmm. or the books they read as adults, which is fine, like whatever gets you there is great. But I think sometimes, To actually see the bullshit, like to see it and to understand what the the system of white supremacy does not only to black and brown folks as the targets, but even the damage that it does to white folks so that they do that kind of bullshit that those kids and their coaches did. Mm -hmm. Like white supremacy did that to them too, right? It warped their thinking too white supremacy led six out of ten white people in louisiana when i lived there to vote for a nazi david duke when he ran for the u.s senate white yeah. supremacy did that and when you see that it, it's not about the critical race theory class that you took in college or it's not about the oh god i read you know i, I read this amazing book by ibram Kendi. okay cool fantastic but the stuff that you see and that you can feel yourself uh, is is 10 times more powerful than whatever scholarship you can ingest.
0: Just FYI, everybody, we had a little bit of a weird experience with a number calling me, and it's a long story, but I just had to like unplug for a minute and we're back, so okay. Now, I wanna talk to you about white supremacy because it's something that it's always been around, as you were talking about. It's, it's nothing new, but it certainly has exploded. And I'm just wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on where this country is headed and where you genuinely believe it's going to go? Because there's white supremacists in power. Trump was a white supremacist. And I'm really frightened about the future of our government and how white supremacy plays into that. So, like, what do you see happening in the future with elections and all of it?
1: Well, I mean, first, just for the sake of, of clarity, you know, white supremacy as an ideology and as sort of a systemic reality has been baked in, you know, to the country, obviously, from its inception. I mm-hmm. mean, the, yeah. going back to the colonial period, but even even if we just look at the country itself, you know, the very first law that was passed by the Congress after the constitution was ratified so they you know they go into session the constitution is now ratified the very first thing they do Before they raise money, before they figure out the army situation, before they do anything, Mm -hmm. before they like, you know, pass a resolution to congratulate themselves on this new (laughs) nation, like before (laughs) anything, the first thing they did was pass this law called the Naturalization Act of 1790, which said that all free white persons and only free white persons could be citizens. So Mm -hmm. basically, what they were saying is the most important thing that we can do right now is to let everybody know that whiteness is synonymous with citizenship and Mm. exclusive to citizenship. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so in that regard, white supremacy, obviously nothing new. White Mm -hmm. supremacy has, has been part of the system from the beginning. Now, now the difference between, you know, 230 plus years or so and where we are now is that we're in a, in a position where for the first time, really, whiteness itself as this um sort of dominant hegemonic cultural uh bmf is really being challenged obviously Mm -hmm. there have been challenges before to various versions of white supremacy so the Mm -hmm. abolitionist movement challenged enslavement which was one iteration of white supremacy the civil rights movement challenged jim crow segregation which was another iteration of white supremacy but in the post-civil rights era um, there's been this much more nuanced, slick, what Ian Haney Lopez calls dog whistle politics version of white supremacy, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we're still doing racist shit, but we're just using language that yeah. sort of obfuscates that. And um, and for 30, 40 years, you know, that that worked. Um, and and what's happened in this, you know, you begin to see this when Obama is elected, that there is this existential meltdown <laughs> in parts of white America mm-hmm that really had nothing to do with Obama's agenda, because let's be honest, Obama was not about really fundamentally revolutionizing anything yeah, in the United right. States at all. He was just trying to get some folks some health care, yeah. and not even not even like really radical health care, I mean, right. you know, just some, some basic <laughs> stuff that used to be Mitt Romney's right. idea for that yeah. sake. But, but the fact that here was a black guy with a quote-unquote exotic name mm-hmm. and a different kind of background. You know, he grew up in Hawaii, you know, and a lot of white folks think that's just like a vacation destination. They still aren't clear that it's a state, you know? (laughs) Um, so you got a black guy with a funny name and a different kind of background coming to power at a time when the economy happens to be melting down Mm -hmm. and so for the first time in 80 years white america is looking at double-digit unemployment we hadn't we had not dealt with that since the depression black folks brown folks sure that was every day yeah but for white folks like that was really new and then at the same time you have the 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 popular culture beginning to obviously shift you know in a very multicultural Mm -hmm. direction i mean our popular culture Entertainment. Everything about our popular culture is thoroughly interwoven now, yeah. and and if and if you've grown up in a popular culture where all the icons sort of looked like you, you know, the music your kids mm-hmm. listened to was was music that even if you didn't like it, they looked like you, you know, the the athletes sort of looked like you or what you could identify with all the, you know, pop culture icons and now popular culture is multicultural and interwoven. The political system is being led by the black guy, the economy's melting down. Oh, and by the way, The demographic shift is so significant that within 30 years, white folks will no longer be an absolute majority. All that was happening at once. Mm -hmm. And it created this anxiety in white folks, which I wrote about in my book, Dear White America, during all the Tea Party stuff, um, that sort of prefaced the Trump movement and the MAGA movement, right? And so so what I think we're seeing, what makes white supremacy unique right now, again it's not unique. It's mm-hmm, been here for right. hundreds of years, but what makes it uniquely dangerous is that unlike any other point in that hundreds of years process, whiteness is actually being made visible for the first time we're actually naming it right Mm -hmm, we're shining mm -hmm. a light on it we're problematizing it Mm -hmm. it's no longer you know the old saying used to be uh you know being white means never having to think about it and that was true for like hundreds of years mm-hmm. but now if the culture is shifting and you're having to share the designation of what it means to be an american with people that don't look like you and don't pray like you and you know have different cultural traditions than you then all of a sudden pluralism is encroaching on your ability to be like the floor model of the all-American boy or girl, right? Like if, yeah. if I said all-American boy or girl 30 years ago, we all know what everybody in this. Right, yeah. and, and when I say everybody, I don't even mean just white people. I mean, even black and brown folks yeah. would be like, oh, that's some white blonde in Kansas. Yeah. You know, like that would have been the the prototype and yet now you you know you use those terms and that might not be. Mm-hmm. You know, you might you might think of a Latina in Albuquerque. You mm-hmm. might think of someone who's who's Hmong American in the Twin Cities, who, you know, who who are every bit as American as everyone else. Um, and that to some people is incredibly threatening. Yeah. And so where it leads from here is a very open question because what we are what we are now up against is not just Sort of right versus left. It's certainly not just Democrat versus Republican. Um, it's not just sort of the elite against the masses, right? What it is is this is this battle between multicultural pluralism and democracy, small D democracy, um, as opposed to sort of implicit white nationalism and and you know semi authoritarianism. Because the only way, really that you can stave off the changes that are happening is with authoritarian tactics. You know, the demographic shift cannot be changed or stopped by anything other than incredibly draconian measures. And I'm talking like way beyond the wall at the border, like mm-hmm. the people that are anti-immigrant who think, oh, if we just build the wall, we can we can keep all these brown people from, swar- look, the, the demographic shift that everybody's all nervous about where <laughs> white folks are gonna, you know, no longer be the, the dominant majority, that's gonna happen even, even if not one more immigrant. Came right. in, brown immigrant came into this country the reason that's happening is because the median age for white women is 43. And forty-three-year-old white wow. women just don't have a lot of babies. It's right. just a fact, yeah. right? Whereas the median age for Latinas—and I'm not talking about undocumented Latinas—I'm mm-hmm. talking about citizens—is mm-hmm. is like twenty-nine, <laughs> yeah. and the media and the median age for Black women is like thirty-four, wow. and twenty-nine and thirty-four. Right. And the median for Asian women is like thirty-seven, and hmm. and women thirty-seven and below have a lot more babies yes. than women forty-three and older. So it's done. Like yeah. white folks, it's done pack it in like this is not <laughs> going to be a majority white nation unless you want to get behind literally putting people on cattle cars yeah. and 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 deporting them or exterminating mm-hmm. them. like that is it is literally a battle between those who believe in letting go and allowing this to become a multicultural pluralistic democracy mm-hmm. or Imposing like birth restrictions on brown people and subsidizing white people to have babies, which you know the last person that did that was Hitler. So you know, great, you know, you can create eugenic programs and and sterilization programs. You that's it, like that's the only other option. So it is a choice between fascism and democracy. It's that stark, and I don't know which way it's going to go. I do that. I I don't expect white folks to go quietly. Uh, into a more pluralistic, you know, functioning democracy. I hope I'm wrong, but we just need to understand that's those are our choices now.
0: How much difference do you think it makes to have this, like, very diverse nation and then within the pop culture the acceptance and absolute, you know, just integration of everybody and then having a country that is run in a, you know, white supremacist, fascist kind of uh Ideology. I mean, because I wonder about that. You know, I mean, as I grew up and I talk about this all the time. When I grew up, it was Sesame Street, it was electric Company, and it was yeah. diversity and free to be you and me. And I was always under the impression that we were just going to continue to be diverse, that we were going to see women presidents, we were going to see black right. women presidents, and then of course now things are going in an op- direct, opposite direction politically. But like you're saying, in pop culture, it's right. very diverse. So how how does that how does I mean I guess and, and I'm asking this in a way because in one, on one hand, I feel like the answer is, well, if you have fascists running everything, then we are going to see some of those things, that you, whether it's, you know, we're not going to see ovens again, but we will right. see the equivalent, like the contemporary equivalent. They'll figure out something that's yeah. going to be just as horrible. And because I had the opportunity to live in Soviet Russia and I got to see an yeah. entire nation – petrified of saying anything. So they said nothing. Like, I mean, do do you see that the, because the American people have had a certain experience for a certain amount of time and we're all used to it. And then if that gets taken away or changed over, do you think that we would just become like not Soviet Russia, but in that we would become like the Russians who just said nothing because they were too afraid?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's always been that that tendency here, you know? Yeah. I mean, the Soviets got to a point where they didn't really have to send anyone, you know, to Siberia anymore. They didn't really have to send people to the Gulag anymore. You know, it was like, it was like people were just cowed. Right. And I remember, look, that, that tendency has, has been here. I remember even in the eighties, you know, doing various activist work around, you know, U.S., policy in central america or south africa or whatever and we would have petitions for people to sign and there were always those people who were like well i don't want my name on a list you
0: Mm -hmm. know because
1: they're gonna come after me and so so you know that that fear has always been there but i think it's probably ramped up even more now because of the you know of the of the uh, sort of the surveillance age that we're in right Mm -hmm. so people are Really nervous now. Some people clearly not nervous enough about getting caught. So the insurrectionists are putting their shit out in the street, yeah. you know, and 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 being like, "Woohoo! I was in the yeah. Capitol on January sixth. Come and get me!" And then yeah. they come and get you, you know. But uh, <laughs> but but so I mean, I get it, right? But but I think what um what is uh what is what is likely here is that we are going to see an increasing kind of circle the wagons mentality among a certain group of white people. And it's going to be those um, who are, you know, disproportionately those who were older. I mean, they are the ones mm-hmm. who were having the hardest time with yeah. the adaptation, because they're the ones who still can nostalgically recall the pre-civil rights okay. era, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones who can actually say MAGA and not be like ironic right like like I mean someone someone who's 23 wearing a MAGA hat is like what what are you what are you talking about make America great again like what like your junior prom like what are you (laughs) like really and truly what are you even hearkening back to but if you're if you're 75 right Mm -hmm. if you're 80 you're you're somebody who maybe you remember you know Oh, I remember sock hops and drive in movies and hula hoops and shit like that. I remember when the Beatles came to America and it was so exciting. Like, you're, you're not you know you're not necessarily thinking, oh I really want to go back to segregation but right. you're nostalgically able to just ignore how terrible that period was mm-hmm. for millions of your fellow countrymen and women. And so in that regard, what we see in this country has always been sort of a split personality yes. of people who can embrace the culture uh, the, the multiculture but not really embrace the idea of power sharing right yeah, and right. and and that's that's mm. always been the divide because if you think about it like what was the most popular style of music by the late 30s or mid 40s it was jazz mm-hmm. right i mean it was it was you know black music black um b- black sort of artists have always been on the cutting edge and and have always been accepted long before um black bosses have yeah, been right. and and black bankers and black lawyers and mm-hmm. black doctors and black presidents and And, um, you know, black boards of directors or or black neighbors, for that matter. Right. Mm -hmm, Like it's always easier to, oh, I can cheer for this athlete or I can really be into this type of music. But boy, you know, if I have to really share power, that's the that's the distinction. And so that's always been the split. And and I think for some younger folks who who grew up and when I say younger now, I mean anything, you know, maybe. I don't know, 35 and younger, maybe, maybe even 40 and younger mm-hmm. there is, and certainly, you know, 30 and below who came up in a much more multicultural mm-hmm. space. It's certainly, it certainly tends to bode well. I mean, it, in and of itself, it is a good thing, but the danger of it, and this is what we sometimes overlook is that it is really easy. If you came up in a, in a culturally pluralistic way of thinking to assume that the rest will take care of itself right to think that well because i have these black friends and maybe you really do have them maybe Mm -hmm. you're not the person who's bullshitting like i said earlier maybe you really do or or maybe you really do just love black you know music and culture and blah 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 whatever but, but if you assume that that's going to lead to real multicultural democracy and you're not thinking about the power dynamics that continue to skew the justice system, the school system, the housing market, the job market, mm-hmm. then you're going to be in real trouble. So some of the, the cultural democracy, the, the more small-D democratic culture stuff can be helpful. Sometimes it can also cloud our vision. And so we have to, we have to be able to distinguish between cultural pluralism and economic and political pluralism Mm -hmm. because they're not the same thing
0: wow well you know you wrote a thread on twitter about um race neutral policies and i want to get to that but first we're going to take a quick commercial break There's so much going on in the world that can make it difficult to relax and decompress. You've experienced the Sunday Scaries, that feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach that comes on Sunday afternoons. Now here's a totally different Sunday Scaries, vitamin-boosted CBD gummies. And you don't even have to wait until Sunday night rolls around. Self-care is so important and Sunday Scaries is here to help. Sunday Scaries believes that everyone deserves a hand on a difficult day. So if you're looking for a way to decompress, Sunday Scaries has you covered with their CBD products. Visit sundayscaries.com and use the promo code SEXYLIBERAL, all one word, at the checkout and get 25% off your order. That's 25% off at sundayscaries.com with promo code SEXYLIBERAL. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. These products are not for use by sale or to persons under the age of 18. All right, and we're back. Okay, so you wrote you, you wrote a long thread, so I just kind of want you to go off on this, but the first thing that you wrote was people rarely think about all the ways that race-neutral, normal, everyday policies and practices perpetuate and help deepen racial disparities in this country, but they should because this is too, okay, wait a minute, because this too is a large part of what we mean by systematic racism. So let's dig into this. Explain it.
1: Yeah, I mean I you know there's all a lot of people are using the term systemic racism sometimes those of us in the anti-racism community obviously use it also, those who are critics of those in the anti-racism anti-racism community use the term and usually, usually you know, make fun of the term or dismiss the term, mm-hmm. but they use it. Um, and so there's a lot of people using it, and I don't think sometimes we define it. And even those of us on the left and in the anti-racism community don't do a good enough job of really describing what it is. So I try in a lot of my social media stuff and other you know, pieces that I write on Medium and other places to, to sort of delve into what, at least what I mean by it. I can't speak for everyone else. Right. But for me, the, one of the you know best ways to conceptualize systemic racism is to distinguish it from the much more deliberate, intentional, individual-driven racism that we tend to think of when mm-hmm. we think of racism. And so when I think of systemic racism, I think of the sedimented inequality that stems from a series of policies and practices and procedures which are fully normalized in our society and that we never or at least rarely question, which may not even have any And probably don't have any deliberate racist intent, Mm -hmm. and they may be colorblind in the sense that they don't even speak to race. They don't specify anything about race, but they very clearly have predictable, foreseeable Mm -hmm. racially disparate consequences, and if we understand those policies as – institutional racism which then becomes sedimented throughout the system then we understand what systemic racism is so in the thread which i ended up not completing because i got distracted i need to probably get back to it but (laughs) but i I talked about how this works in employment and schools and housing uh in particular and so in employment you know it's one thing to talk about oh implicit bias and microaggressions and and stereotypes and overt hostility and all that stuff is real But there's some other things that are at least as important in terms of how people get jobs in this country. And so the two main ways people get jobs are either through networking and connections, which are obviously racially disparate. They're Mm -hmm. also gender disparate and class disparate Mm -hmm. because the best networks are going to be overwhelmingly upper middle class and above white guys, whether they're really the most qualified and capable or not. They're they're the ones who are going to know the people who can write letters and put in a good word. And there's been plenty of evidence of that. Uh, And there's nothing you can do about that, by the Mm -hmm. way you can't outlaw the old boys network. Obviously you're not going to be able to pass a law to prohibit people from, you know, telling their neighbor, Hey Jim, you know, there's this great job at my company. You might want to apply, but that's why we need DEI and affirmative action efforts to balance that out. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, that's going to be there, but you want to be able to make deliberate efforts at inclusion to counteract that. Yes. Um, And unfortunately the right just wants to attack the counteracting But not deal with the the original Uh problem right Uh and then the second thing when you know if if, if you're not getting a job through networks and connections you're getting it supposedly the old-fashioned way of you know i had the best resume Uh i was the most qualified i had the most experience but but let's be honest in a society of unequal um, outcomes and opportunity in the past, in, in a society of profound inequity, where some have had advantages historically, and no rational person denies that, those who have had a head start ought to hit the tape first, so to speak, mm-hmm. to use a racing analogy. So, if I've had a three-lap head start on you in a five-lap race, I'm supposed to cross the finish line first. Doesn't mean I'm the fastest runner. By the same token, if I've had, you know, opportunities in the job market that you haven't had, my resume ought to look better than yours. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean Mean that I'm necessarily more qualified. So employers need to be much more um, deliberate about about thinking critically mm-hmm. about the credentials that they see on when applicants apply for jobs because a lot of times if you don't do that you're going to recreate an inequity yeah. you're going to recreate unfair treatment even though you didn't mean to doesn't mean you're a, a racist in the overt sense but mm-hmm. you're engaging in a policy that perpetuates inequity in housing uh, a good example you know is you know people will say well the reason that you know black folks are turned down for mortgages more often or they get higher interest rates is because their credit scores are not as good or their credit history is not as good okay well putting that aside and i I make a point in the thread that actually there's some evidence that even black folks with better credit get worse rates or they're turned Mm -hmm. down at a higher rate but put put that aside and just think about what goes into credit scores and what doesn't how do people get credit you know when i was 18 years old my mom put me on one of her credit cards as a co-signatory and i had access to the card i couldn't use it much i mean she put me on a pretty short leash but Mm -hmm. she said like you know but you can use this a little bit, and I and I did, and that helped. And then she paid the bill, mm-hmm. and that helped me build up a credit history, which I then totally screwed up later because I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm bad with I'm bad with credit. My, my wife ultimately had to fix my credit by by you know being the one who paid all the bills. Right. But I had that early credit, and a lot of white folks I knew, mm-hmm. their parents did that for them. The black friends that I had, like their parents didn't do that, and it wasn't because they didn't have the money to do it or whatever. It was because they're like credit is a trap. Don't get a credit card. Yeah. Eighteen percent interest. That's, right. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're trying to rope you in and screw you. And they were right. Like yes. the black parents were actually smarter yeah. than my mom in a sense, and <laughs> way smarter than me. But but the problem is, if you don't establish credit early on, yeah. now when you try to go get a house, they're like, well, you don't have a credit history. Right. Or and and, and the, the even bigger thing is, you know, the only stuff that goes into your credit history is actual commercial credit which may seem obvious and you may be like well yeah no shit but here's the problem there are a lot of things that black and brown folks and working class white folks too for that matter because there's a class element to this that they do have unlike a credit card maybe they you know they have a phone bill they have a cable bill they have a uh, internet bill they have a water bill they have utilities mm-hmm. they, you know previous rent and none of that stuff goes into yeah. your credit score. Yeah. So you could be paying all your bills on time, you could mm-hmm. have a really good record of doing that and making but none of that's going to help you. And and so when you go to get a mortgage they're like, "Yeah, you're too big a risk." And so a lot of black and brown folks, it's not because the the bankers necessarily are racist. They might be, Mm -hmm. but they could be totally not a racist, just using this normal procedure. And it's going to work to the detriment of of folks of color. Education, you know, obviously, you know, using standardized tests on unstandardized students with unstandardized curriculum and and access to resources is going to perpetuate racial inequity. You can think of similar examples in the justice system. I mean, the point being, We need to think about the way that a lot of the stuff we do every single day in these various areas perpetuates racial injustice and that is what we mean by systemic racism. It doesn't require bigotry. It doesn't require bias conscious or unconscious we could get rid of all the personal bias in the world and if we didn't interrogate these seemingly race neutral practices and realize what it means to operate those in a racially skewed society it'd be mm-hmm. one thing if we'd all started out equal like if we'd all started out truly with equal opportunity maybe this wouldn't be such a big deal mm-hmm. but when you when you have a system that is already, structured on the basis of inequality and then you take these practices and you lay them on top of that society Mm -hmm. you will perpetuate that injustice that is what systemic racism is
0: wow it's just so you know it's interesting because i like to watch uh and and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I've admitted it before. But I like to watch the Real Housewives, like three shows particular. And, oh yeah, and- we
1: watch that. My, my wife and I. That's yeah, that's our thing too. We watch it. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I can admit it to you now because
0: you've
1: admitted it first. Yeah. No. And I mean, wait, which ones do you like?
0: I like. I don't like all of them. No, me neither. I like. I watch The OC, and I watch uh, New Jersey and Beverly yeah. Hills. Now, yeah. I will say that in all of those shows first of all, I have noticed that most of the time they're all white people with the exception of, Oh God, Atlanta, which is primarily well, black Atlanta
1: and, and Bethesda. Uh, yeah. The, the DC one, right. The, um- Yes. Yeah.
0: So they have more, a uh, more diversity, although, so what I, so yeah, it's a little embarrassing, but I can't help it. And part of the reason I watch it though, especially like with the OC, the patriarchy is just so evident and on display. So I don't watch it because I'm like, Ooh, it's just so fun. It is fun. And it's like eating Cheetos, you know, it's like the equivalent of eating Cheetos. There's no nutrition in it, but for me, it's just junk food, but there's also this I don't know. There, there's something I take from it. You know, like, for yeah. instance, in the Beverly Hills, which I'm going to bring up in a second, I want to talk about there's a black woman on Beverly Hills, and she did something last night. But, um, yeah. well, it was last week. Anyway, so um, there was a fundraiser. That, somebody did a fundraiser, and all the women showed up, and they were all wearing ridiculously expensive outfits. I mean, right. ten to $15,000. And so that I'm grateful that they're giving money to these charities, but it's just so sickening to me to see yeah. them – um, comparing outfits That are like Mine's $20,000 And they don't necessarily Say the price But You right. know that they're So expensive And it's just It's just so gross So anyway And I don't remember Either one of their names But there were two women On, on a show I watch it on Sunday So there were two women yeah. One one is white One is black And yeah. um so I guess at the end of last season, they did the reunion show, and on the reunion show, the white woman had basically the, – the, the black woman and white woman got in a fight, and some argument or whatever, and so the white woman said, hey, we had this, we had this fundraiser, and you raised up your thing, and you were going to pay us uh, five grand or whatever, and then we never got the payment, right. and so – this season they got together and they were they were at a restaurant and the black woman was like okay first of all you know they talked about it and it was evident that the black woman there was a reason she didn't pay and it was just because there was a mistake with an address or something and that had to be worked out once that was worked out she did what she said she was going to do and give money to this charity so she asked the white woman um would you ask this of black women and, of course, the, the look on the white woman's face was like, oh, my God, I can't believe you asked me that. And, and then so the black woman explained to her, she's like, you know, there's a history of black people being accused of not paying their bills and not tipping. And, you know, and, and they're careful to not get angry because there's the stigma of being an angry black person. And so she said there are certain things like when I go to a restaurant and I get food. Or if I place an order and it doesn't come in time and all the people around me are getting it and I'm not, um, and basically I'm being ignored and it comes late and it's cold and all this stuff. She's like, then do I have to decide, do I tip? Because if I don't tip, they're just going to blame it on the fact that I'm black, but I got terrible service. Right. So, no, I
1: saw this. I, yeah. No, I, and and not only did I see it, I, I know I I can actually uh, just to let you know how how much I clearly watch this show. Uh, <laughs> it was it was Kyle and Garcelle. Thank
0: actually, you. Thank you. I always forget and, names. And uh, but what was fascinating <laughs>
1: about that? So I don't know if you saw you know on the last episode when this came up and. And Kyle, to her credit, seemed to yes, take to heart she what Garcelle had yeah. said. Uh, at first she was stunned by it right. because she had that typical reaction of like, oh my God, I never thought of that. Yeah. But then you could see that she's like, oh shit, I never thought of that, right? right? Yeah. But then uh, in, in the latest episode that I saw, it was fascinating to watch one of the other uh, quote unquote, real housewives, which I, by the way, like, I don't know any housewives that are like, any <laughs> yeah, exactly. like this is I the know. weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life. But, but in any event, uh, one of the other ones, Sutton, you know, like loses right. her mind at the mere yes. conversation yes. about race. Like she starts crying. It's like, it's like they were, you know, this episode of real housewives of Beverly Hills brought to you by white fragility. Exactly. Like, this, like this episode is, you know, like, like, like it was a, it was a corporate sponsor. Yeah, you know, and and uh, and she starts crying um, at the mere discussion uh-huh. of this, brought to her attention mm-hmm. by one of the other uh, uh, castmates uh, who who is Asian, who mm-hmm. who who you know says to her, "Hey, uh, do you realize uh, it's Crystal?" brings up. Um, you know, are you going to be that that white woman that says I don't see color? And then yeah. of course Sutton's like, well, yes, I, that is me. What's the, <laughs> you know, and you're and you're just sort of watching it, going, oh dear God, yeah. like this is really like even the most seemingly basic point which mm-hmm. Garcelle was trying to make, which is I have to think about stuff you don't. Right. And then Crystal, Crystal basically saying the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Like I have to think about stuff you don't. And there's Kyle who's sort of like, yeah, that's really deep, and I need to think about that. And I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of pathetic. She has. I never thought about that right. before, but whatever, like, all right, you she's know, in her bubble. You yeah. come, it's fine. You come to the dance late, no mm-hmm. big deal, but for God's sake, do not tell the DJ to play your music. Like, <laughs> right. like you need to, you know, just <laughs> dance to whatever the hell's being played. And Kyle seemed ready to do that. And Sutton's like, well, hell no. And then made yeah. it about her. And it's, is it cause I'm from the South? Y'all think I'm racist. Mm-hmm. And then it became all about her feelings, Yeah, which again is I think a very typical, deflection that white folks do and not just white right-wingers, you know, white liberals. Mm-hmm. And, totally. and And I don't know Sutton's politics at all. Um, but, but I mean, you know, my guess is that most of the time the people who react that way are the ones who do say, you know, but I've got all these black friends right. and I love everybody. And, and, and look, I, I'm not somebody who wants to entirely dismiss that personal connection that people sometimes really do have like i said it is important it mm-hmm. is it is part of why i am who i am and the and the reason that i view the world the way i view it but i also realize that that personal connection i had to those kids that i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. uh, on the show did not protect them as they grew right. up it yeah. did not you know me being buddies with all those black kids that went out to Jolton to play baseball in 1980, um, and, and standing up for them and being there with them as we were, you know, surrounded and being yelled at by these white kids that, you know, I, that didn't get my friends a house loan when they Mm -hmm. were 40. Yeah. You know, that didn't, I mean, I wasn't there at the bank for them. Not yeah. actually my presence wouldn't have helped them. Cause like I right. said, my credit by that time was awful, <laughs> but, but like, but like, you know, I'm not there when the cop pulls them over, yeah. you know, for, for being in the wrong neighborhood, quote unquote. So, so even when you do have the personal connection, there's still shit happening that you have no idea about. Mm-hmm. And, and, and part of Breaking the habit of white supremacy is coming to have the kind of humility mm-hmm. that allows you to say, man, there is some shit that I just don't understand yeah. and, that, and that I'm never going to understand. And so the best way to deal with it is to trust that the people who do actually deal with it every day mm-hmm. have are not hallucinating, mm-hmm. like they haven't actually lost their mind, like they actually are rational enough. To discern their reality. And that may seem like such a basic concept, but if it were as basic as it seems, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in because white folks would be like, man, I should probably listen to black people. And men would be like, man, I should probably listen to women. And straight and cisgendered folk would be like, maybe I should shut up and listen to LGBTQ (laughs) folk, right? Like we would just, we would have that humility, but we live in a culture that generally doesn't encourage humility. And it especially does not encourage humility among the more dominant social and cultural groups.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I was definitely, I'm glad to see that there are um, some characters on that show that are not white. It's good to see that because it was something that I thought, geez, man, every freaking season, it's all white women. And, you know, I mean, especially in the OC, like I was saying, they really hold up the patriarchy down there. Even though there are some successful women on their own, they're still perpetuating patriarchy. But... Here here's a perfect example and I I I don't remember if I brought this up to you before if I even had the conversation but I spoke with the comedy duo Frangela. Both women are black and yeah. um you know I'm I'm a white person and I have my white privilege and there's a little bit of the bubble I try to understand as best I can. And yeah. I've talked to black people and I've gone out with black men and I've had you know that's not to say that oh pat me on the back i'm so special but i mean i i do try to make an effort to understand but there are certain things that i can just never understand like for instance one of the women um uh, of, of that duo frangela and i can i'm so bad with names so <laughs> just pardon me i can't remember which one uh which name um this woman was saying that she had been on a job interview and yeah. was asked by the guy the white male who was interviewing her if she knew who her father was. Yes, yeah, right. And I mean as much as I could imagine you know black people especially black women having to endure constant racism whether it's you know angry and an accusatory type of of racism or if it's just you know passive and right. it's just a that never in a million years would have occurred to me and, and i and I know that it was one of them who also said that when they were also on a job interview, this woman had kids, and the the white guy interviewing her asked if the father was around, not even knowing if they were still yeah. a couple, you right. know and it 's like so so there the things that black people have to experience in this country. Some of the things as a white person who feels like, okay, I think I understand to a degree, and I want to understand more, would never even occur to you, the right. stuff that they have to go through. And it's, it's really unbelievable, you know, it's just right. And so, like, you know, uh, going back to the housewives, I'm it's funny to me that you watch it. And I know more men watch it than admit to. And it is embarrassing oh, yeah. to admit because it's just, just it's just, I mean, like, it's just
1: uh, well, I look at all of everything I watch on Bravo, I watch as a sociological experience. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's all like because it is fascinating. And, you know, and I, I knew growing up as, as someone on the left, I mean, I was always, you know, surrounded by people who just like wanted nothing to do with popular culture. It was just mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, I'm not going to let my kids watch TV and kill your television and mm-hmm. I'm not going to watch any Disney films and let my kids, you know, cause it's all evil. But you know, the reality is if you want to have a critique of the modern world, yeah. and you want to have a critique of modern popular culture, but you're not actually familiar with it mm-hmm. then then what is your critique based on it's right. really no different than those right wingers who think everything is sinful but they never read the book that they're critiquing they never saw the movie that they're critiquing but they're going to say that it's vile and lewd and pornographic mm-hmm. and blah 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 you know i mean it's like no i'm going to i'm going to watch I'm going to watch those things. Now, I do have my limit. Like, actually, I just can't watch OC. I'll be honest. I can't (laughs) watch OC. (laughs) I I can't Like because, first of all, anyone who knows Orange County knows that that's only OC, like, as it was 30 years ago. Orange County has, like, the largest Vietnamese community. Outside of Vietnam, like anywhere in or outside of other parts of Southeast Asia, than than anywhere else in the world. But you wouldn't know that right. by watching that show. So I watch. I do watch. Uh, I do watch Beverly Hills because it's fascinating. It is. I do watch Atlanta and and Potomac because, uh, which I called Bethesda earlier because right. I'm confusing. Myself. But you know, it's, it's, it's the it's the I-95. It's the Beltway yes. corridor. People. Um, Uh, I do watch Potomac because it's not it's not white centric in in that regard. Um, And and I do watch New Jersey because I like to see tables get flipped. (laughs) um, You know, but but uh, and I watch New York, you know, because that's a train wreck also but um so basically yeah i i do consume all of this uh with a with a, and i take it with a grain of salt mm-hmm. and sometimes it makes me a little nuts but mm-hmm. but i do think that you do see these moments mm-hmm. of uh, that are actually really valuable like to be able to point to that exchange that we just talked about yes. between kyle and garcelle and then sutton and and crystal mm-hmm. is actually like if that's the stuff that millions of people are watching. Yes. And that allows me to say like, oh, here's what we mean by white fragility Mm -hmm. or here's what we mean by, you know, the power of whiteness and the invisibility of, of, of white privilege. Like I can give you, you know, a bunch of other sort of academic and Mm -hmm. scholarly examples, which may or may not land. Or I can say, Hey, watch this clip from this, popular television show that you already watch and let's Mm -hmm. talk about it and which of those things you think is going to be more impactful probably the Real Housewives discussion (laughs) that's so true
0: it's so true and yeah I mean um uh, Sutton's reaction I mean she just was like no we're not gonna t-. I mean she was so hard t- yeah
1: she's like I can't even go there yeah I, and, and you're just sort of like waiting a- and then when it became all about being a southerner and as a southerner you know I just look at that and my eyes like roll permanently yeah. around in the back of my head because you know the reality is if you've got a complex about being a southerner that's on you, yes. you know, and, 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 and I get it. Cause I used to, I used to have that. I used to be hmm. so, um, so concerned about how, We were viewed in the set because because there was a time when I was so insistent, like I wanted you to know I was different, Mm -hmm. right? I wanted you to know that I wasn't like that, and so I would try to try to like stifle any (laughs) inkling of a Southern accent that I
0: had. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And I don't have a really heavy one compared to most, but I mean, it'll come out. And I used to fight it. Mm -hmm. I used to fight it like really vociferously because I didn't. And then I was like, wait a minute, what is that bullshit? Because here's the reality, you know, if you want to look at the history of of white allies. To the anti-racism struggle, uh, I'm talking during the civil rights movement. I'm mm-hmm. talking during the abolitionist struggle, and even the colonial period. The vast majority of those white allies came from the South. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was Anne Braden and Carl Braden, and it was Bob Zellner, and it was you know Virginia Foster Durr, and it was people that were that were in the South. So, what is it I'm ashamed of? There's yes. this alternative Southern tradition, which I'm sure Sutton knows nothing about, <laughs> and and that allows her to think that well, everybody must view us as. You know, slave owners and segregationists well. If they do, that's their that that's wrong for them to do. But mm-hmm. it's partly because we in the South have not held up right. our actual heroes and heroes. Mm-hmm. We haven't actually said, no, these are the white people that we want to be like. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, instead we want to keep. You know, we, we don't have statues to to Anne Braden and Virginia Foster yeah. Durr and 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 white abolitionists from the South. You know, John Fee, who who was a, a abolitionist minister, who was literally. Defrocked from his congregation because he refused to minister to slaveholders. I mean, you know, the only place you'll find a statue of him is on the campus of Berea College, which he founded. But you're not going to see him, you know, like enshrined elsewhere. Why? Why do we have statues to a bunch of Confederates and we don't have statues to white abolitionists and we don't have statues? Well, you know the answer. The answer is we have made a choice, Mm -hmm. but we made that choice, Mm -hmm. and so if Sutton doesn't like the impact of that choice, then Sutton needs to get her ass out of Orange (laughs) County – not Orange County. Get her ass out of Beverly Hills, come on back to (laughs) Charlotte or wherever the hell she's from, and fight for a different kind of southern image of a white person Uh, because otherwise she has nothing to offer this conversation
0: other than her tears. Yeah, and she oh god, she stressed me nuts. I don't like her, but yeah, yeah, um, that was that was an amazing exchange, and I was actually kind of happy to see it just because it's always been like all white women, and yeah. now they're you know I'm I'm grateful that they're introducing more diversity into that show and like you said because it's pop culture because so many and you know what i know more men watch it than they admit and um and i'm sure women more women watch i mean it's a little bit easier for women to admit but it's embarrassing to admit it because it i mean it's a soap opera but it is a social experiment and it is even though like for instance another show that i like to watch and i find fascinating and my boyfriend and i watch it it's called little people big world and it's about this Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so so the parents are dwarves, and then yep. they have, um I think, five kids, but one, they had a set of twins, and one of the twins is a dwarf, and then his brother isn't, and then the rest of the kids right. are normal size. And right. so, you know, it's like when you watch this show, even though some of the the things they make them do are contrived the relationships yeah. are not and the and a lot of the right. conversations that they have those are genuine but the, they'll create an event just to have something for everybody to be involved in and right. you know but those feelings the fights the conversations that they have are all real and i think it's also beneficial because when you know i mean i've 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 pretty much seen all the shows now and it's been on yeah. forever for i don't know yeah. how many seasons but it's the the kids they were kids when it started and now they're married and have they they have their own kids, so right. it's a lot of time. Uh, that show's been on the air, and I know not everybody watches it, but for everybody who does watch it, it's like you start. It's like dwarves become normalized. It's not even an issue because I know when dwarves are out and about and they're doing their thing, they get a lot of stares. People stare at them, and they, you know, they also, which I didn't even know, like go pick them up. They were just talking about how like people just pick them up oh my god
1: no yeah it's so awful yeah right no i mean i do think that in spite of how contrived reality tv can be and and it can be and there's obviously when you watch real housewives or any of the other shows you know there's there's certain aspects of real life that are sort of soap and all they don't make for good tv and so you know that there's a certain degree of not scripting, but, but like, you know, creating storylines and creating some drama or, or there's clever editing. And we know that happens on all of these shows, but that doesn't mean that the underlying messages and the value of a show like that isn't real. Like the, the, you know, the fact, the fact that all of a sudden, you know, you, you start to see entire groups of people as, fully human and and, mm-hmm. and, and and which is absurd that you didn't in the first place. Mm-hmm. But the reality is when people are invisible, you don't view them as yeah. fully human. You just don't, you know, whether whether that's whether that's on the basis of class, mm-hmm. whether that's on the basis of race, whether that's on the basis of sexuality, whether that's on the basis of stature, whether that's on the basis of some disability, whether yeah. that's on the basis of I mean, whatever it is, right? And so um, I I think that there is a service that is done by this stuff and yeah. so we have to we i think sometimes people on the left and progressive people are so quick to sort of you know eschew popular culture and it's all just capitalist money making bs right, yeah, yeah it is it is that but it's also a reflection of the society mm-hmm. and i started thinking about this a lot uh, in the last several months because you know the the very first real sort of reality show the real world had mm-hmm. their you know big yes. reunion for the first season and i and i know uh, a couple of the people from that season and several other seasons i'm friends with kevin powell and oh, there wow. was this there was this real um you know this i don't know if you saw the reunion episodes this I did. year but like there there was this real i mean basically the storyline was kevin was right the whole time right? because what he said back in 1992 about racism being this this monstrous force in america which some of his roommates just could not hear Mm -hmm. um you know this was during the rodney uh, during the, the, the the rodney king beating or the trial based on the rodney king beating um and and the uh and the and the uprising that took place in la afterward um And yet his roommates couldn't hear it. And 30 years later, it was like, well, damn, you know, Kevin was right. And Mm -hmm. so, so the question is, was some of that stuff from the real world contrived? Sure. Kevin will tell you there were, there were, you know, things about it that weren't nearly as real as it seemed when Mm -hmm. it first aired, but you know what it, it changed. I think it changed the culture for the better because it introduced Mm -hmm. a lot of people to that thinking about the importance of racism, even Mm -hmm. even if it was in the guise of this supposedly angry black man, which was really messed up for them to cast him that way, or to view him that way, or to portray him that way, and I'm sure at the time that I know for a fact, from having talked to Kevin, that that was not a good experience for him, because Mm -hmm. he had to catch hell for years and years and years, but here we are finally having this realization and this reckoning and this ability to look back now and see the video footage, right, because Kevin could have been having that conversation with random people without a camera around and it, there would be no archive of it yeah. there would be no educational value to it but now we can actually look back and go oh shit he said that in 1992 now let's look at what was going on then and what's going on now and it becomes an educational tool yeah. and so as much as we might want to say oh it's all contrived you know pop culture bullshit the reality is we 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 consume that stuff yeah. and so we can we can either use it as a tool Or not. But Mm -hmm. it's like any tool, like a hammer can build a house or it can bash your head in. Right. So it's how you use the tool. It's not the tool itself, which is the problem.
0: Right. And, you know, going back to that capitalist thing, I mean, when you go to shows like the Cosby show, which, of course, Cosby just turned out to be the worst horrible person. But before that all happened um his show was incredibly i mean it wasn't just the cosby show because bill cosby there were cartoons he he was a huge part of our culture obviously beloved and we didn't know that he was a serial rapist but um take the serial rapist out of it just for a minute and look at the cultural impact and for me a white kid growing up in the 80s um I, I feel that I, you know, I mean, we've talked about this before. I felt that I was fortunate because in some instances, I too was one of the lone white people in school. So I was never singled out for being white. I was never made yeah. to feel bad for it. But I did get that experience where yeah. some white people just their whole lives, they go to school with white people and they don't know any different. So, yeah. and, and, you know, my mother was always somebody who who talked about, Equality and tolerance, and so that was always in my life. And then I would watch a show like The Cosby Show or or Designing Women or any of these shows yeah. that promoted the idea that uh, of diversity in any way. And right. it, you know, I mean, they were extremely important because they did show America: look, a black family can be incredibly successful and educated, and you know, a positive thing.
1: Well, and there – yeah, now there was – I do want to I do want to mention this. There was a, a very interesting downside to that, which I do want to point out. So okay. yes, it was really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, however, a study that was done by um, a couple of professors, one of whom is a good friend of mine at, at UMass, um, that looked at the effect of The Cosby Show on white viewer attitudes. Now, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been – this wouldn't have been an issue for you or for me or for other – white folks who were also Around black people mm-hmm. um, But but I think for a lot of white folks It had this effect what they did is they had These focus groups and they and they talked to these white Viewers people who loved you know The Cosby show and it was mm-hmm. one of the few shows That crossed over mm-hmm. uh, racially yeah. In those days like most of the time the other shows You know were either black shows quote unquote or White shows quote right unquote, right and and That was one of the few that had crossover well what They discovered was that the Thing that white folks apparently really liked About Cosby was that Because the Huxtables were this, you know, successful doctor lawyer team upper middle class family they could very easily identify with them, but it reinforced this other belief oh, which is yeah. problematic, which is well, if the Huxtables can make it, why can't right. everybody? Make
0: there it, you right? go. Like right. it actually yes.
1: reinforced the notion of meritocracy and rugged individualism. Mm-hmm. Now, if you actually were around real black people, you would know better than to assume. One-dimensional stereotypes, good or bad, are true. Like mm-hmm. you would know better, but but if you didn't, right? If the only black people you knew were the Huxtables, you could be like, "Oh, finally, black people I can relate to." Unlike Good Times, yes. unlike the right. Jeffersons, mm-hmm. unlike which, actually, to be honest, Good Times and the Jeffersons and All in the Family and those shows yes. were considerably better yeah. on the issue of race.
0: They were, yeah. And actually,
1: confronting Sanford and Son and all those mm-hmm. shows considerably better and more cutting edge, but because the black people in sure. those shows were working class, or even, or, or you know, in the case of the of the of the, uh, the Evanses, I mean, they lived in public housing in mm-hmm. Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's like so. A lot of white folks watch that show, but they couldn't really relate to mm-hmm. this family. And so now, here come the Huxtables, and it's like, oh, I, the American yeah. dream really does work. So there is a there is a downside, but yeah. again, the value of the Cosby show existing and then the value of Good Times and these other shows Mm -hmm. existing is we can then take those snippets of popular culture and talk about, and Mm -hmm. they become pedagogical tools. That becomes an actual textbook, right? That becomes something we can look at and say to an audience, hey, why is it that you related so well to the Huxtables? But when the show, I don't know if you remember the show Rock, but when Rock came yes, on, I which remember. Was Charles yeah. Dutton, this yes. brilliant stage actor who's since passed, but um, I think, I, I hope I haven't just written him out of, <laughs> out of, I think I think Charles Dutton died several years ago, brilliant stage actor who did this television show, and it was a great show, and it lasted like one season. Well, what was the difference? It was on at the same time Roseanne was on, and mm-hmm. Roseanne mm-hmm. was big. Roseanne yeah. was working class, yeah. you know, working class white folks, Rock was working class, he he was like the head of the sanitation department or whatever in philly or whatever town it was and and but white folks didn't watch Rock. It was at least as well written as Roseanne, if not right. better. But we couldn't relate, apparently, to like working class, average, everyday black people. You yeah. know, they had to be the doctor and the lawyer. Right. They, you know, the white folks could be as dysfunctional as that. You know, what working class? It could be married with children. Was like mm-hmm. the most dysfunctional yes. family in the history of television. Like I remember one epi- I watched one episode of that, and all <laughs> I remember was like the Bundys were eating snow cones made with mouthwash because they couldn't afford <laughs> syrup or something. I mean, like what? <laughs> like that like working class people don't do that no. like this is this is the dumbest thing i've ever heard of but white folks were like oh i can't wait to watch that yeah, show I know. but you can't watch rock <laughs>
0: it's like right well, what
1: you know wow it's bizarre or you can watch insane. friends but you didn't watch uh living single yeah which, which i loved actually living what friends was based on yeah it you know, was actually stolen from that show
0: yeah um so and I, that was a I, good think- show
1: It was a very good show, but I think it's – I think popular culture is a really good tool Mm -hmm. that we can use. Sometimes it doesn't – the usefulness of it isn't obvious right away. It may take years for us to go, oh my god, look at that. But Mm -hmm. that's why it is important for progressives if they're going to have a critique. Like you need to know what's being said and Mm -hmm. what people are ingesting because then you can refer back to it and say like you know, it's really hard to – to critique the disney film that you didn't see you know it's really hard to critique the television show that you're too precious to to watch (laughs) you know know, because you're watching your documentary on on the sundance channel or whatever right and by the way like i watch those too but but like right now i'm binge watching the practice you know which was like my favorite show in the 90s but and it's fascinating how many interesting you know things come up on that show yeah that you realize 20 some odd years later oh wow okay this is the same shit that we're still dealing with so yes. I think there's a real you know need for progressive people to 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 really think critically about popular culture and how to use it rather than just just sort of turning them. our nose up at it like it's all just dirty or something
0: yeah know? that's a great point well before we go I do want to touch on one more thing because I saw you that you would I think you were, retweeted it and someone posted a video of you video of you talking about the, the white guilt versus responsibility yeah so in I just want you to kind of go over that because I thought that you made an incredibly good point and there are these questions now especially now lately people coming up and you know white people saying why do I have to feel guilty about what my ancestors did when I didn't do it so like I just want you to kind of say what you said
1: well I mean the thing that you know and i said this for a very long time I, I said it in uh you know in my in my first book White Like Me that that you know, the difference between guilt and responsibility is, you know, guilt is what you feel for the stuff that you've actually done. Mm-hmm. And responsibility is something that grown ups take because of the kind of people that they are. Mm-hmm. And and even non grown ups can. I mean, you know, and maybe not as good at it as, as others, but that it's 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 something we take because we wanna be accountable to the world as we find it. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm fully aware of how old modern-day white people are not. I realize they did not establish the slave system. I realize mm-hmm. they are not old enough to have established the system of segregation, but we inherit the legacy of everything that has come before us. I am, I am sitting right now in a house on land that that used to be someone else's land and and that land was taken by force from indigenous peoples who lived in the nashville area long before my family came here and so i've inherited quote unquote the legacy of that conquest if i am going to inherit the ability, the upside of someone else's actions, mm-hmm. that is to say, the opportunities created by that, the wealth, not that I am wealthy, but but the relative wealth that I have or that others have, then, then fine. But I have to also accept that I've inherited the downside mm-hmm. of that. If I inherit the benefits, I also inherit the deficits. And if you think of it, you know, this isn't really a radical idea. If you thought about it in any other context, like if you were to say, Um, you know, that that you think about pollution, right? Like I don't know anyone personally who has their own, supply of toxic chemicals that they inject into the soil or that, or that they go dump into the rivers. Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone who has their own smokestack where they like, you know, pump out all these heavy metals into the air and cause acid rain or whatever. Like, (laughs) like, I don't know anyone who does that, but the reality is all of that stuff has been done and it's been done for the purpose of modernity and economic progress and, you know, the development of great riches. So, so the question is, are we, guilty for you know the state of the ecology not directly but are we going to be responsible Mm -hmm. and do something well i certainly hope so because if not we are continuing the pattern of damage it's like if you become that the corporate you know the ceo of a corporation you can't walk in on the first day and tell your chief financial officer hey look um you know, I know we have all these debts that we, you know, racked up, taking out loans and stuff. But listen, I wasn't here, and I didn't take <laughs> right. out those, those <laughs> loans, and I and and so that was that other CEO. You really should have had him pay it or her pay it. But, yeah. but now that I'm here, I'm just going to use all the assets. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use all the revenue. Oh yeah, I'm going to make use of the revenue stream y'all had before I walked in. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to pay the debt. That that's not responsible. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't about guilt or shame. Guilt and shame or unproductive they've Mm -hmm. never liberated anyone Mm -hmm. from anything when you feel guilt and shame the only thing that you want is to get rid of it and the easiest way to get rid of it is just to walk away from whatever's making you feel shitty yeah and so if you want people to change the world you can't have them walk away from making change because because the work makes them feel bad you have to say listen this is not your fault but it is your responsibility Mm -hmm. and and if you think about it in all the other ways that we try to you know it's like most of us come from dysfunctional families whether we acknowledge it or not <laughs> some of us you know some of us are more than willing to acknowledge it i'm in therapy and and, and i'm real clear i'm mm-hmm. real clear on the dysfunction but um but and as a result what do i learn in therapy i learn that i've inherited the legacy of all the bullshit that went down before me mm-hmm. and i and, and it's and i could sit there in therapy and be like well it's not my fault well, it's not my fault. I acted like an asshole. I come from a long line of assholes. Like that's not the yeah, an answer, right. right? That's not. That's not. Uh, you know, it's like I'm not to blame for what my dad did. No, but if I inherit some of the bullshit and carry on some of the dysfunction, like, well, then I gotta, you know, like, yeah. like it's like, do you want to just be an adult or do you want right. to just keep making excuses? Yeah. And I think that what white America's learned to do over the years is just pass the buck mm-hmm. and kick the can and every generation has said the same thing every generation has said well it wasn't my fault it was the last generation but mm-hmm. then the two generations later says that it was you mm-hmm. and then and then th- three generations later says it was two generations before mm-hmm. and and so at some point like we just keep going around and around and around and nothing gets solved yeah. and and so if you really want to, you know, if white people really want to stop feeling bad, there's a really great way to do that. Get on board this movement for racial justice and mm-hmm. equity and you don't have to feel shitty ever again yeah, because right. you'll be fighting for a different world that that, that doesn't constantly remind you of injustice yeah. because we won't have injustice. How about that? If we didn't have injustice, then you wouldn't have to sweat feeling shitty about injustice. That seems exactly. to be the most direct route <laughs> to fix the problem. Right?
0: Wow. God, talking to you is always so great. I, you're just this Fountain of knowledge, and I like how you. I'm glad that our conversation went into some pop culture because it's true that whether that's a good thing or not, that is something we all kind. Of, whether or not you watch the show we were discussing it doesn't really matter. It's just the idea right. of pop culture influences how we think, and um, it, it can have a much more a, a bigger impact, I should say. Then maybe like you were saying something academic, which doesn't feel personal to you, but pop culture does because you're emotionally invested in it. So I'm glad we got to talk about that. But before you go, um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you?
1: um well I, I, that's always a loaded question with me because i get as i told you before uh, you had to tell me what your phone number was going to be before you called me because i get hate calls and i always oh, right. if I don't know the number i ain't answering it so i'm not going to tell people where they can find me sadly some nazis have made that all wow. yeah. already but i will say this uh, online folks can find me obviously uh, on twitter <laughs> at, at tim jacob wise um they can also find me on facebook the 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 main Facebook page is also I think findable under at Tim Jacob Wise um, my Medium articles which is the main place that I post longer essays uh, can be found under my name at Medium um, and I have a website that has like old archive stuff at timwise.org, but I haven't updated it in in years, Uh, but you can find some old stuff there. And those are the main places. Obviously my books are on Amazon or from the publishers. Uh, My two main publishers are city lights and, uh, and soft skull counterpunch. Um, or I'm sorry, not counterpunch counterpoint. Um, and the latest book dispatches from the race war, which is an essay collection is available from city lights directly, or you can get it at, you know, whatever bookstores you shop at or on, line at whatever place you get your you get your books Uh, my patreon is speak out with tim wise uh, on patreon so folks who want to get some audio essays i got a lot of stuff archived Uh, you know i haven't been real good about posting stuff lately but i'm going to get back in the habit of doing that so if you want to support that you can do that there and i think you know that's it that's that's all the good places to find me. I don't I don't Instagram yet uh and I don't and I don't TikTok so you're not going to find me on those
0: places but uh. I do Instagram but I don't TikTok either. Well, I yeah. did put your Patreon, I think your website and your um Twitter handle in the Patreon yeah. description of this show. So if anybody wants to go to it quick, you can find it there. You can also find me on Twitter at author Kimberly K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. Don't forget that extra E. And then my books are also on Amazon. And I would just like to say, if you do get one of my books or Tim's books and you read them and you like them, authors need reviews. We always need reviews. And so I also, same thing for podcasts. So just FYI, everybody. But anyway, Tim, thank you so much for coming back. It was so great talking to you.
1: Oh, you bet. You too.
0: Okay, take care. Bye-bye.